Let's open our Bibles to the book of Zechariah. We're going to get through an introduction tonight and also chapter one. I do want to take a little bit of time as a lot of the symbolism that we're going to see in Zechariah uh, applies in two ways to the book of Revelation. One with absolute certainty and one without not so much certainty. And I'm gonna take a little bit of time and just give you examples. Let's start with the ones uh, that we know for sure in Revelation that are directing us back to um, the book of Zechariah. Um, probably a good place to start would be in, um, put your finger in chapter 14 of Zechariah and then turn to Acts chapter one. We'll start with that for one that we know for sure. Acts chapter one, verse nine, is the ascension. Verse nine says, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. We know this happened on the Mount of Olives. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now go to Zechariah chapter 14 talking about the final siege and the second coming when the Lord comes again. Um, Verse three, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in a day of battle. Now verse four is a prophecy. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley, Half the mountain shall move towards the north and half towards the south. Here is what we call one that is an absolute certainty because angels told them, you saw him go up, the same Jesus is gonna come back to the very same place. Um, I actually quoted this to um, a city councilman. Her name is Annette Hoffman. And um, at one time she was on a moon's board. And uh, by the way, she says, I think I told you guys this. She said, say thank you very, very much for your uh, generosity. Did I say that on Sunday or not? Well, you guys have been, I'm not going to tell you the numbers. Let's just say you were very, very generous. (laughs) And she completely blew her away by the amount that came in. So from a moon to you, thank you very, very much. Uh, They'll be able to open up um, uh, the community center again. And... um, I'll just leave it, leave it at that. Getting back to Annette Hoffman, who is a city council member, no longer. Um, I was waiting for a board meeting to start. We're just small talking. And um, what can I say? She, she's an extreme <laughs> uh, radical feminist. And she's behind a lot of demonstrations, getting things all stirred up and all worked up. And um, uh, I didn't know if I was going to like her, and she didn't know if she was going to like me when we first had our first meeting. But here we are waiting for the board meeting to start, and so we had to kill some time. And um, I don't know why I, I brought up this. She asked me what I did that day. I said, oh, we're up in the Mount of Olives. And she says, well, what do you know about that? And I said, well, I know it's going to have an earthquake someday, and it's going to split in two. And she goes, how do you know that? And I said, well, how do you know that? <laughs> and she said, we spend more money researching the fault that runs through the Mount of Olives than we do on our budget to protect people from bombers who would bomb buses. And this is during a period of time when it was much more radical than it is now. And she said, how did you know that? And I said, because of uh, Zacharias, you know, your Old Testament book. <laughs> and... Um, it's a true story, and it tells us what's going to happen after that. 
Um, by the way, you're in verse five. Uh, they will flee. Uh, thus my God will come and all his saints with you. So there's a scripture that applies to you and it's directly tied into Acts chapter one. Um, as long as you're here, keep your finger here and let's go to Zechariah chapter four and look at one that's an absolute certainty and then open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. This is in regard to the two witnesses that are introduced right at the beginning of the tribulation period. We know that, and I'll just read it. Um, We'll be coming back to verse two because one of the other things that uh, Zechariah is told to do is to measure the city. And verse two is measuring the courtyard. Verse three is what I'm interested in. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of all the earth. Let's just leave it there. We have um, um, symbolism with the two olive trees. And now if you're in Zechariah 4, let's go back and read where John is told by the angel, these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. So chapter four of Zechariah. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And so I said, well, I was looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it and on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. So I asked and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, well, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And so he answered and said, this is a word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If I would say there's one scripture that we would say, along with Acts chapter 2, describes um, Pastor Chuck's heart of, of the Calvary Chapel movement, it's this verse right here. It's not by man's might, nor by man's power, but it's by the Holy Spirit. Um, who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. All right, here in, ch- in chapter four, what you have a picture of, go back to a revelation, is one of the, there's another Zacharias or Zacchaeus that was, his son was John the Baptist. He was a Levite, he was part of the priesthood, and the way they did it in those days, they, they rotated. You would be in the temple for two weeks as a Levite, and then another Levitical priest would come in, and they would uh, make the showbread, um, put incense in, in, in the candles, but also one of their job was, was to keep the lamps going. And so they had to put oil in them on a daily basis. Well, what we have a picture of here is a picture of two olive trees. Where does oil come from? Olive trees. <laughs> so what, the, what we have a picture of here is a supernatural picture of an unlimited supply con- coming right in from the trees right to the lamp stands. And as we read it in, if you're in Revelation 11 again, It says, these two witnesses, which I believe are Elijah and Moses, um, if anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies, and if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have power to shut heaven so no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over water to turn it to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. What is it saying? They have an unlimited power resource of the Holy Spirit, whatever they say happens. 
And if you try to stop him, you're killed. So it's an analogy. We have the Old Testament picture with this unlimited resource coming into the lampstands. But what it's really talking about is an unlimited resource of the power of the Holy Spirit that Moses and Elijah can choose to use whenever they want to. We know that their ministry lasts for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Okay, let's look at another um, for sure one. Let's go to um, Zechariah chapter nine. And also... Luke chapter 19, Zechariah chapter 9, and Luke 19, let me find that real quick, there it is, pick it up in verse, not Daniel, Dwight, Zechariah, Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, he is just and having salvation lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this is a prophecy, it comes from Zechariah. But we tie it into the New Testament by going to Luke chapter 19, and we call this, this is the fulfillment of Daniel, if you're taking notes, Daniel 9 verse 27, that um, uh, verse 26 I should say in 24, that tells us the very day that Jesus would allow himself to be worshiped in public. But before that event happens, we go back in verse 28, and we read, when he had said this, he went on ahead going into Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he came near to Bethage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, or back in the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples saying, I want you to go into the village opposite you. Where you enter, you will find a colt, tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anybody asks you what you are loosing him, thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So they went and departed just and found it just as the Lord had told them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, hey, what are you guys doing? And they said, well, the Lord has need of him. And whatever the Lord had communicated to the owner of this donkey, he understood what was being said. And uh, they, they bring this colt that had never been ridden on. That's a miracle, by the way. Anybody who rides horses or has um, been on a horse that's never been ridden before. And they sat on them, and they went and they spread their clothes on the road. And as they drew near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice. How did Jesus come the first time? He came humbly, he came as a servant, and he came lowly. How can you better describe that than a, a, a creature that's not a full-grown donkey, but the foal of a donkey, a young donkey, never been ridden. And so he, he comes and he manifests his messiahship coming, he said, come and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart and you'll find rest for your souls. That's his nature. And his nature is even being described through us by this prophecy from Zechariah, clearly fulfilled on the day that they worshiped him as Messiah. The next thing we read here is Psalm 118. And they were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, the Pharisees got all uptight and he says, rebuke these guys. They actually think you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, sorry, I can't do it. This is the day. If you go back to Psalm 118, it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. It was a special day. It was April 6, 32 AD. He says, if they don't worship me, then the rocks are gonna worship me. So as we look at this one, um, let's go back to Zechariah 9. Um, also fulfilled in the very next verse. I like I liked to use this again as an example of the Holy Spirit taking the liberty to completely change a train of thought and then even have a gap of a couple thousand years between one verse and the next. And so we see it here, we see it in a book of Isaiah and other places. But as we go through all the Bible, if you look at verse 10, the very next verse, 
It's about the Lord reigning in the millennial kingdom. Well, that's right around the corner after about the seven-year tribulation. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Battle shall be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, the Lord's kingdom, when he comes, how's he come the second time? Lowly? On a colt? No. He comes on a white stallion and a sword out of his mouth as written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, coming with great power and great glory. So, Two very different, and this time coming back, he comes in judgment. Because the next thing um, that he does is is basically um, fulfilling um, the battle of Armageddon. There are many that we, we could go, this is absolutely for certain because the scriptures are tying it together very, very clearly. And we go, yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. That's a no-brainer. But I wanted to do that in starting out because our introduction tonight, so let's go back to our beginning of chapter one here. Our first chapter isn't so clear as we're gonna talk about four horsemen and four myrtle trees. And in my research, people are all over the place trying to tell us what they think this means. And when we get to it, I'll tell you what I think it means. But I want to bring this out because we're going to get into um, uh, next week, especially in chapter five, um, where things that we're just not as clear about. But now I want to get into an introduction to the book of Zechariah. You'll notice that there's only one other book before the end of the New Old Testament, and that's Malachi. So this is Zechariah. So it's the time of Zechariah is about 12 years after they're allowed to return from the Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem. So that's the time frame. They've been back in Jerusalem now for about 12 years. The date is 520 to 518 B.C., And the temple is only half completed. In men's prayer, we were reading just how opulent and the amount of pure gold that went into Solomon's temple. And it had to be the most expensive building ever made. And um, this temple is only half done. The people are disheartened. They're discouraged. You know, when we studied in Nehemiah, that Nehemiah got a report. He's still um, under the uh, Persian Empire now at that time, under Xerxes. And he got a report that day that nobody's doing anything back in Jerusalem. Everybody's bummed out. They're grieved. They're just doing nothing. And it really grieves Nehemiah's heart and the the king read his body language and he says, what's your problem? You're not supposed to be sad in the presence of the king. We have a problem here. What's the problem? <laughs> he said, all right, I just got word that the people that got to go back are discouraged. Um, they're, they're, they're there. Only 50,000 went back when there were first less than 50,000 were allowed to go back. So now the temple is only half completed. The Lord spoke to Zechariah. He was sent by God um, to encourage the people to get back to work on it. He doesn't come with a rebuke, get your act together and get back to work. That's not his message. His message is um, one of encouragement rather than one of uh, rebuke. And he explained to them, look, the temple has to be rebuilt because if the temple isn't rebuilt, then um, we can't reconstruct the Holy of Holies where God's presence is. So he communicated to them on a level the importance 
of having uh, the temple done. His name, Zechariah, means God remembers. God remembers his covenant, his promises to Israel. Um, What's unique about Zechariah is he was not only a prophet, but he was also a priest. There are 28 other Zacharias in the Bible. And um, let me just go and let's just give you an example of one. Go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, we'll look at verses 34 through 36. Therefore, indeed, I said to you, prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, Cain killed Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And so he is telling us pretty much how he died, and it's actually recorded here in Matthew and where it took place. And we find that uh, he was murdered between the temple uh, and the the altar. Um, The book pretty much closes the Old Testament. Like I said, there's only one other book, Malachi, Um, the last book. His contemporary who ministered right alongside him during exactly the same years is the prophet Haggai. So Haggai and Zechariah, both of them, their ministries took place at the same time. Uh, The temple is finally completed in 516 BC. And with that much little bit of a introduction, let's go back and dive into the book of Zechariah. Chapters one through eight, if we would divide it up into two sections, is writing to encourage the people. Again, these would have been between 520 BC and 518 BC. Uh, Chapters nine through 14 were actually written after the temple was built, and it has a lot to say about Jesus in these chapters. The fact that he would be sold and betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Well, that comes from Zechariah. And um, um, you really can't have a good understanding of Revelation without knowing um, Zechariah. Again, he was a contemporary to Haggai. Ezra 5, verse 1 and 6 14 will verify that, although he was probably a younger man. Uh, the book has a characteristics of the apocalypse that we read about in the tribulation period of the, of the revelation. Um, the visions resemble those in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. Both Daniel and Ezekiel were born in the land of Israel, but they wrote their books outside of Israel. Zechariah was born outside of the land, down um, by the canals of Babylon, but he wrote his book from Israel. It's interesting that Daniel, Ezekiel, and John were outside of Israel when they wrote, and only Zechariah was in the land when he wrote this apocalyptic vision. In the dark days of discouragement, which covered all the remnant that were there, he saw a future hope. He gives a vision of hope. He has more messianic, this is important if you're taking notes, he has more messianic prophecies than any other minor prophet. So when I said last week on Sunday, um, just like Daniel, you really don't understand the book of Revelation unless you have a pretty good grasp of the book of um, Zechariah. All right, first four verses. A call to repentance. In the eighth month, in the second day, in the second year of Darius, 
So we're in that period of time now, not the Babylonian, but the Medes and the Persians. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, and notice the cross-reference there. I don't know if you, you see it yours, but mine says Matthew 23, 35. What, what we just read, how he was killed. And his, he was a son. His father's name was uh, Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Now, he's not talking to them. He's saying he was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached. I'm thinking Jeremiah, the whole book of Jeremiah, that was his one message. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear me, says the Lord. Who he's talking about right now are not the people that are gathered back in discouragement. Basically what he's saying is don't make the same mistakes that they made. The Lord is speaking to you. I'm sending uh, the prophet to speak encouraging words to you. Don't be discouraged. Um, The Messiah is coming. The temple needs to be rebuilt. And don't make the same mistake by blowing it all off like your fathers did. Because for 70 years, they did not want to hear what Jeremiah had to say. Um, This is God's very practical warning. He is saying, your fathers paid no attention to the prophets whom I sent to them. I sent Hosea, I sent Joel, I sent Amos, I sent Isaiah and Jeremiah, I sent all of these prophets, but your father did not listen to them nor heed their message. This is the reason they went into captivity. So the book begins with Zechariah saying, Don't do what your fathers did. Don't make the same mistakes. So in verses five and six, it says, your fathers, where are they? Answer to that question is they're dead. And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. In other words, they get it. Their fathers didn't. Uh, They did not take hold of your fathers means they did not overtake your fathers. The judgment of their sins overtook them and they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts um, thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so he has dealt with us. In other words, they were finally willing to admit that judgment which had come to them was just and righteous on the part of God because he had warned them, but they had not listened to them. I can't help but think of Daniel's prayer. In Daniel 9 verse one, it said, I was reading I was reading the prophecies of Jeremiah and he said 70 years are determined here. And then from verses one to 19, there's this probably the most famous prayer, if not the famous, next to the Lord's Prayer or whatever, that's recorded in scripture. But basically Daniel's just pouring his heart all out and saying, we have sinned, I have sinned, we've gotten away from you. And... Um, their fathers were hard-hearted, but even though they're discouraged, um, they recognize dad was wrong and let's not make the same mistakes. So that's their response to the Lord's questions. By the way, where are your fathers? The answer to that is they're dead. And, um, and the ones that are there now, they're discouraged, but they're committed not to make the same mistake again. Verse seven and eight is the there's eight visions that we're going to have in the first half of the book. This is the first one. 
and we'll look at two. Some see three instead of two, but we'll deal with that when we get there. The horse among the myrtle trees, verse seven and eight. On the 24th day, on the 11th month, which is the month uh, Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were other horses. One was red, uh, one was sorrel, and one was white. And we have... Uh, uh, these horsemen, and we find uh, here uh, th- three other ones. And so, with that, remember I started out by saying um, the two witnesses from Revelation clearly prophesied in in uh, chapter four. No brainer. This is where I could make assumptions, but I can't say it's identical, but it sure is interesting, and here's why. The first, we're starting the book of Zechariah. The first vision that he has is what? One of four horsemen. Go with me to Revelation chapter six. Now, I really do believe the Lord leads and guides where we are in the Bible, and our Bible studies. Tonight, we're starting the book of Zechariah. What's the very first thing we see? You need to turn to chapter six. We see four four horsemen. And it's the beginning of the book of Zechariah. Well, Revelation six, we're only gonna get through one verse on Sunday. And it's gonna be about the Antichrist. But how does the tribulation open? Well, let's read the first Six verses. Now I saw when the the lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat in it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out to conquer and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out and it was granted to the one who sat in it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another and there was given to him um, a great sword. The third seal is opened and I heard the third living creature say, come and see, and I looked to behold a black horse who sat in it and a pair of scales was in his hand and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarii, uh, three quarts of barley for a denarii, um, one roll of toilet paper, $25. Oh, no, that's not in there. Do not hurt the oil or the wine. In other words, we have the very, very rich, and we have the very, very, very poor, and we have, as a result, food becoming extremely expensive. I find it interesting what's going on today is a lot of people are, I don't know if you want to call it hoarding or storing. I think it could be a wise thing to do. I think it could be overdone. I think it should be an individual decision in your own family on how you deal with what's um, sort of around the bend. And so what I can't be dogmatic about is because the writer in Zechariah, the first one is red, and Revelation chapter six, the first one is white, and we know who he is, and we're only gonna get through this one verse on Sunday and do a complete Old Testament study of him and a complete New Testament study of, of, um, of the Antichrist. But here we have um, one of those things where I just find it interesting. The book of Zechariah starts out that way and the beginning of the tribulation starts out with four horses. Back to Zechariah. Verses uh, nine through 11. Then I said, my Lord, 
what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord. Some believe this is actually the Lord himself. He's referred to sometimes as the angel of the Lord. Who stood among the myrtle trees and said, well, we have walked to and fro throughout the whole earth and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. All the earth sitting still and is at rest means that there was peace on earth during this period of time. That sounds good because during the 5,000 years of recorded history, there's only been about 200 years where we can say there was peace on planet earth. Man is fierce, he is warlike. Um, Defund your local police department and you'll find out exactly what happens when you do that. What's really in the heart of man? Where did I hear? In San Francisco, somewhere out there? Um, uh, where they had defunded the police department? They're actually going into people's homes now and saying, that's my house, you're out. Get out. Yeah. Was that, somebody else heard that too? Yeah. yeah. So my, my point in all this is my Bible says that... Um, my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. But not just mine, yours too. <laughs> well, don't say that. That doesn't make me feel very good at all. Well, how about this one? In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Paul says, I refuse to judge myself because my flesh is so tricky that I can't even trust it. I just have to trust the Lord to be my judge and learn to walk in the spirit and die daily to the flesh. Good place for an amen. You know the thing about problem with dying daily is? It's daily. <laughs> it's daily. And here, um, there's peace in the land, but the reality is there's war in the heart. But during this period of time, there was peace. But what kind of peace? Well, it's going to be a peace that's not going to last very, very long. Verses um, 12 through 15. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? And the Lord, and the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease for I was a little angry and they help, but with evil intent. This word here, I was but a little displeased that is God, God's chastisement was intended for a brief period, but the nations of the world wanted her annihilation. Not a day goes by when you don't see it on the news where somewhere is talking about um, a rise in anti-Semitism and you're hearing it on a daily basis. And um, I can uh, sometimes get misunderstood by saying black lives doesn't matter. This is a, a propaganda issue. It's being funded by people like George Soros. Multi-million, millions of dollars are coming in to support this. Let me clarify so I don't get any emails. What happened in Minneapolis was wrong, and it was... Um, these men that did it, the police department that did it, um, should be held accountable for their actions. End of discussion. I don't, don't condone it one bit. Having said that, it's pretty much caused lawlessness to be shed throughout the entire world because of this one incident that took place. And it hap- is this, this happened every day before this event, 
but this was used for propaganda material to bring about the downfall of our country, to bring about a one-world government and a one-world religion. And my friends, we're just watching it unfold. I've been saying it's going to happen for the last 40 years, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. Now, as you look over the last five months, if I would have told you a year ago, well, one year from now, um, you won't be able to go into most grocery stores without a mask on. You'll be on lockdown, and this is going to be worldwide and affect people, and people, people's economies are going to be completely destroyed forever, and our nation will probably never be the same forever. Dwight, you're still making me feel not very good tonight. <laughs> well... Um, this is the reality of, of what is happening and it gets back to um, this whole idea that we're actually watching it unfold and um, how long will it take? Well, only the Lord, Lord knows. I believe this. I believe that the rapture of the church is real close and I believe um, the beginning of, of this What's taking place in the Middle East, I mean, it's finally, all the pieces have finally come together. And I could get really uh, sidetracked here talking about the alliances between Russia and Iran and Turkey. And, but you're aware of that, and we did a whole study, if you're interested, on Ezekiel 38 that you can pick up in the back if you want to. All right, um, let's read 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor shall line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Well, when we were in Revelation 11, um, John is told to measure the Temple Mount but don't measure the outer courts because it's been given over to the Gentiles. Now that's a real interesting verse for two reasons. We know that the temple has to be rebuilt. We'll talk about this on Sunday. Thessalonians 2 says, we'll know the Antichrist when he goes into the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In order for him to go into the temple of God, it means the temple has to be rebuilt. Good place for an amen. So we know it has, it has to be rebuilt and um, a big part of our study will revolve in Second Thessalonians 2 of him actually doing that. But the interesting thing about Revelation 2, I'm gonna go back to it and read it. You don't have to. I'll just read the one verse. It says this. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood rising and said, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the outer court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Interesting verse because Dr. Asher Kaufman a professor at the Hebrew University did a writing on where Solomon's temple actually existed. And according to him, Pastor Chuck always quoted this, you can stand on the Mount of Olives, look through the eastern gate, and it'll line up directly in front with the temple, which makes sense. And um, except when you go there today, and you look at the wall that's the eastern gate, they call it the golden gate or the eastern gate, it's all blocked up. It doesn't line up at all with where the temple should be. Uh, What you have there instead is something called the Dome of the Rock. And if you're an Orthodox Jew, they will tell you, hands down, that has got to be destroyed before the temple can be rebuilt because they said that's where the original temple stood. But I actually did an experiment one time when I was there. I was actually there for a board meeting. So I had a week all by myself just to hang out in Israel. 
So I could do little fun little projects like stand on the Mount of Olives. And I said, well, if Asher Kaufman says the temple is supposed to be here and it's not, I went and I paced it off because a little bit to the north of where that is right now, the one that's all sealed up, is the original Eastern Gate. And when you go where that one is located, then where it, it lines up is exactly not um, where the Dome of the Rock is, but it's a little bit to the north. This is one of the, I'm really getting sidetracked here, forgive me, but I got all kinds of time. I am, we're almost done here, so. When you're on the Temple Mount, it is made up of stones that are roughly, I would say, four feet by six feet. Okay, just imagine that in your mind. Four feet by six feet, some four by four, but in no particular order. They're not laid to make any patterns, and they're just, they make a very smooth surface, and it's that way over all the Temple Mounts. Uh, we were in uh, Men's Prayer, and we're reading about Solomon's stables. One of the questions that came up, it says that, um, what is Solomon's stable on the Temple Mount? And I said, yeah, there's a whole corner of it that is the southeast corner, which was, is still called this day um, Solomon's uh, quarters for, for his, some of his horses. He had over 40,000 of them, so of course they weren't all there. But here's my point. There is a place where all the stones line up directly to one spot. That is outside of where the Dome of the Rock is. I hope I'm explaining this well enough so it's understood. And when you follow this line of stones that all of a sudden they're all in order to make a straight, they're about this wide, from here to here, straight back. And they line up almost exactly with something that's called the Dome of the Spirits, which is a little cupola. I would say it's from here to that microphone away. And it's probably about eight feet tall. It's held up by four, four columns. And when we go through the rabbinical tunnel, uh, you'll find, and that's 30 feet underground, and there's a lot of architectural work archaeological work that had been taking place there. There's always women there praying. And the reason they pray there is because they believe on the other side, when the temple was destroyed, that is where the Holy of Holies would have been. And it's right exactly where the Dome of the Spirits is. All right, let's see if we can tie this all together. We read in Revelation. John, I want you to measure it. But when you measure it, just don't measure the outer court because it's been left to the Gentiles. It's possible for the Dome of the Rock not to be destroyed and the temple to be built, have a wall of separation between them, and that would be the outer court, what we would call the court of the Gentiles. So it's possible that that could actually happen according to Revelation 3. Why does it tell us that? Uh, measure measure the, the temple, but don't measure the outer court. Well, why in the world, do we, what the difference does it make that we know that? Because it's been given over to Gentiles. And um, I bring that up here because in verse 16, again, this is one where measurements are required and we read about measurements also in Revelation 11. <clears throat> Um, and proclaim, saying, verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will gain again comfort Zion, and he will again choose Jerusalem. All of this is future tense. This is a look into the future, even our future, so these people can recognize that they're working in a plan, program, for God which extends into the future. Might I stop and just say a word of encouragement and comfort to you to be involved 
with letting people know what's going on right now from a biblical perspective? Because all the only perspective non-believers are getting right now are ABC and NBC. And um, boy, are you guys missing out tonight. You're missing all those democratic speakers that are there. <laughs> Sighs and groans. What he is, he's doing here is comforting them by saying, look, God's got a plan. And um, he's no respecter of persons. There's neither male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. In other words, all lives matter as far as God is concerned. And everybody is the same as far as all God is concerned. You fall into one or two categories. You are either a saved sinner or you're a lost sinner. If you're a saved sinner, then you get to sing along with the worship team. If you're not a saved, if you're not saved, you don't want to sing at all. <laughs> you're just plain bummed out. And um, but he is encouraging to get involved with the work. Well, what were we told to do? What was the last thing the Lord told us to do? Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and uh, that's called the great suggestion, right? (laughs) No. Nothing else matters. I mean, when you really put this in perspective, just think about it. You're gonna die if the Lord doesn't come, and I'm gonna die. And the only thing I'm concerned about is my name is put in the book of life. That's the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters. Your salvation is the only thing that matters. But to... um, be praying for divine appointments, saying, Lord, put somebody in my path that's uh, interested in what's going on and just give me an open door so that I can be a part of what your plans are. What are your plans? To go into all the world and preach the gospel, all the things that I've taught you, teaching them to observe, not just preaching, but teaching them to observe all the things that I've taught you. Too often today, the churches are either topical in their Bible studies or they're giving evangelical messages. Believe me, not too many people are going through Zechariah right now. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, Calvary chapels. There's, there are other churches that will teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But just in this introduction tonight, did you have any idea that some of the things that were in Zechariah are directly tied into the book of Revelation? But the only way you're going to have that understanding is if you go chapter by chapter and book by book through the Bible. All right, let's finish it up with the last vision. And this last one here is the four horns and four craftsmen. And in my research today, I couldn't find too many people that agreed on this being one or two different visions. Verse 18 through 21. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, well, what are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them to cast out their horns of the nations that lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And this one blows my mind uh, because what I think we have in view here are um, Gentile nations that represent, um, that actually came against um, Jerusalem. Who are they? Well, the four Gentile powers that scattered Israel were Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome. The interesting thing is that in the next vision, God makes it very clear that these four horns are going to be dealt with. All right, so as we conclude, I'm gonna quote from uh, Dr. Unger's book on Zechariah. He believes that the four horns are symbolic of four successive world empires spanning what we call the time of the Gentiles. Uh, And the the four craftsmen must also represent four successive powers used by God 
to terrify and to cast down the enemies of God's people Israel. And that is if you're wanting to get more insight from uh, Dr. Unger, it's his Bible commentary on Zechariah, page 40. And I'll read one more paragraph. In line with Daniel's great prophecies concerning the times of the Gentiles, three of the horns in turn are under the punitive hand of God become smiths or craftsmen, while the fourth and last horn is cast down by the worldwide kingdom set up by the return of Jesus Christ. Coming to dash to pieces his enemies who are at the same time his people's enemies. Thus the first horn, Babylon, cast down by the Medo-Persians, the second horn. The Medo-Persians were cast down um, by the Grecian uh, Empire. And um, then the Medo-Persian, Grecian Empire, of course, was cast down by the fourth horn, Rome, which thus becomes the third craftsman, if you would. Now, the fourth horn, Rome, the most dreadful of all of them, does not become a craftsman, but it is a revived ten-kingdom form of the last days is destroyed by the fourth beast. Now we're talking about into um, uh, the book of Revelation where uh, we find that the Antichrist reigns over ten kings, and that's what they're called. And that's what Unger here is declaring, that this one is still yet future, and it will be destroyed, um, and the millennial kingdom will be set up, and that's when, of course, Jesus comes at the end of the battle of Armageddon, and we'll be talking about his fate. The one who is overseeing these ten toes is none other than the Antichrist. The interesting thing is that if you study the history of Rome, you will see that Rome was not destroyed by outside power. In fact, according to prophecy, the Roman Empire will come back together again. It never did die. It just fell apart from the internal corruption of the kingdom. Does that sound familiar? What do we see happening in our own country? We see it deteriorating, why? because of all the garbage that's out there right now, because of lawlessness that's happening right now. Our whole structure and, and the, 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 the time that I grew up in my teens and early 20s is such a completely different world than what's happening right now. And we're, we're crumbling from within the same way that Rome did. And there is one coming, and this, my friends, and I'll close with this, is blew my mind today when... I did my study because I know where we're going to be on Sunday morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. And the whole Bible study is about the Antichrist. Well, here's how Unger ends his last note of uh, this paragraph. He says, there's one who's coming, the Antichrist, who will restore the Roman Empire. He will be a world dictator. And that's how we're ending with our Bible study tonight. And isn't it interesting, I'm sure it's just a coincidence, that as we end the Bible study talking about a man who's gonna oversee the Ten Toes Revived Roman Empire, according to Unger, and I agree with him, of course, that is sort of laying the foundation as we begin to go into the tribulation period, the third division of the book of Revelation. So we close Wednesday night talking about the Antichrist. We start Sunday morning, Revelation 6, verse 1, the whole studies about the Antichrist. Is that interesting to you? It is to me. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And uh, it's just reassuring, Lord, that your word tells us that you really do um, guide our steps and direct us if we seek you. And I don't believe it's a coincidence at all that we made it through the first chapter and it ends with talking about the ten horns um, being overseen by the Antichrist. 
And on Sunday, the whole study is about this man. Lord, I believe he's alive. And as we'll see on Sunday, we'll know, for those who are here, they will know exactly who he is and how they will know that he is uh, the one. But I believe he's alive and well, waiting sort of in the scene, waiting for his opportunity. Um, Lord, you've told us to pray for your kingdom to come. And we do, Lord, knowing that as these people were discouraged and you sent Zachariah to them to encourage them to be busy, be about our Father's business, might we receive that on a personal level for us, that we would also be busy being about our Father's business. Because the only thing that really matters at the end of of a day is a person's soul, and either it's lost or it's saved. So we thank you uh, for... Um, your purposes, and that your word clearly has a, a plan laid out for us. And how wondrous the book of Zechariah dovetails with the book of Revelation. We thank you for your word tonight. Dismiss us in your peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen.